On behalf of the Economic History Department at LSE, I'd like to thank you all for attending this plenary lecture, which comes at the start of the Epstein Memorial Conference. We'd like to thank you all for coming. We'd like to thank, in particular, Professor Kenneth Pomerantz, uh, for, who has come to deliver the lecture, and Professor Chris Wickham from the University of Oxford, who is going to chair the lecture for us. And so I would like, just without any further ado, to hand over to Professor Wickham. Thanks. Uh, the, the deal is that, that, uh, that Ken will, will speak um, and then there will be, uh, I'll do a, a, a wrap up at the, at the end and then throw it open to questions um, and the whole process will, will, will move towards a, a close uh, between 7.15 and 7.30, um, but we'll come to that later. Um, Anyway, uh, my role here is, is, as, is as maitre d', uh, and um, I suppose, in part, I mean, obviously, I, I'm a medieval economic historian, so I, uh, I, I, I have that connection with Larry. I actually first, first knew him when he was, when he was an undergraduate, um, and um, I had the, the sensation then that I'm sure any of you who met him subsequently did, and uh, I've talked to Ken, who has known him merely since, since, since 2000, but long enough um, and, and often enough, that uh, he really wanted to argue. Um, and he wanted to argue a lot, and he wanted to explain why you were wrong. Um, and if, if you didn't entirely take it, he would conclude that... Um, you hadn't got his point, um, and so he would explain it again. Um, and the, the, not many people do this. Not many people do this anymore. Uh, it's something that we should do more of, uh, and I miss it. Um, but we'll come to that later. Um, anyway, as to Ken, um, one of the world-recognized experts, I suppose, in, in, in modern Chinese economic history by now, um, author of a, of, a, of a successful monographic book, The Making of a Hinterland, from 1993, um, author of The Great Divergence in 2000, which is one of those books that has had a remarkable and extremely quick impact on the historical profession, with people arguing about it. People, people argued about it for... Uh, with some violence and, um, and excellent, as, as I've already said, for, for a good five years after it, after it came out about, uh, about whether they, they accepted its, its basic arguments ab about, about the, the China-Europe relationship in the 18th century or whether they didn't. I think probably overall, although there is still some debate about it, people are tending in Ken's direction, um, and, that's, and that's good. I mean, certainly it's true of me. Um, I think that that book is one of the books that's had the most effect on the way that economic history has moved in, in the last 10, 15 years. Um, so I think it's actually quite appropriate that, that Ken should, should, should start off a, a conference uh, in memory of Larry Epstein because Larry was also interested in the big picture. And I think it's also necessary to say a lot of big picture theorists don't actually understand empirical work. Uh, the important thing about, about Ken, and it was also true of Larry, was these were big picture, were and are big picture theorists who actually 
understand how to construct evidence and argue from it. And I think that's, that, that is one of the things that we need to develop most and we'll be most interested in developing over the next few days. Over to you, Ken. Thank you very much. It really is an enormous honor to be here. Also, of course, in many ways, a very sad moment to be here. Let me start with a confession. Though I placed the word rights in the title of this lecture with Larry Epstein's work on guilds in mind, and workers' organizations have a significant place in the story of skill acquisition in East Asia that follows, the differences seem far larger than the similarities. I also put resources in the title because I almost always talk about resources. But when I finished this lecture, I saw that I really hadn't this time. I'd be happy to do so in questions, but I found I had quite enough to talk about without getting to that. One part of what Larry emphasized in his account of late medieval and early modern Europe, the rise of unified jurisdiction, eliminating local monopolies, internal tolls, and other privileges that had hampered market integration, and so diminished the incentives to produce more efficiently, is much less of a story in East Asia, especially in China, because such institutions were largely abolished centuries earlier in China, or never established in the first place. And even in much more fragmented Japan, they did not seem to have been as big a problem as in much of Europe during the Middle Ages. Meanwhile, another argument Larry emphasized, that although guild privileges did sometimes interfere with market integration, guilds in many places were comparatively open and flexible institutions and played a significant role in creating and diffusing new technologies, travels somewhat better to East Asia, but still arrives looking somewhat altered. China's weak guilds in particular were probably nonetheless important to skill formation, but they have left little record of it. And because they were structured so differently, it is hard to analyze them the same way. Meanwhile, these guilds' near total lack of de jure power means that the analogy between certain privileges in late medieval Europe and modern infant industry protection that Larry invoked would be much weaker in China. The situation is more complicated for Japan and European analogies fit more closely, but still not that closely. And as we'll see, it's not clear that they actually predict the right outcomes. Um, they seem to lead us to a conclusion that turns out to be not what happened. Thus, though one can certainly speak of relationships between skill and the bargaining power of certain workers, which is the way I had put the point in my abstract for this lecture, it was a mistake for me to use the word rights in the title. Nonetheless, the very starkness of the differences between the ends of Eurasia on these issues gives us an unusual perspective from which to reflect on some of the issues that Larry worked on. For market integration, skill formation, innovation, and state power surely mattered in both places, matter in fact everywhere. And a point Larry particularly emphasized, that states too weak to enforce a reasonably uniform, to enforce reasonably uniform rules and prevent private interference with markets, probably inhibited growth at least as much as overly strong states that crushed private initiative during the several centuries prior to 1800 is an important corrective to Whiggish narratives 
not only in the European setting, where Larry made that point, but in East Asia as well. Analyzing these issues in East Asia is further complicated by a problem that is both historical and historiographical, that we're not always sure whether we are supposed to be explaining failure or success. Certainly, East Asia did not pioneer the major technologies of the Industrial Revolution. And since half a millennium before, at the outset of the period Larry studied, it was probably the world's technological and scientific leader. One common way of framing the issue is to look at how that lead was lost, the famous Needham puzzle. And though it is worth re remembering that both China and Japan had very technologically sophisticated agricultures and were very good at diffusing agricultural best practices, for tonight's purposes, as for this conference more generally, I think we can largely leave that aside and focus on proto-industry, where the East Asian record of technical innovation circa 1300 to 1850 certainly lags that in Europe. But at the same time, we should also remember that even in 1850, much of Japan and at least parts of China had reasonably technologically advanced industries compared to much of the rest of the world. That those same parts of East Asia, plus a few others, have been remarkably successful in adapting, adopting, creating and diffusing new industrial technologies since the mid-19th century. And that many people, most notably perhaps Kaoru Sugihara, have attributed this success to institutions that successfully nurtured and utilized a rich store of human capital. Of course, human capital is not the same as skills. It includes many more general dispositions, things like punctuality, habituation to taking orders, and so on. And partly for that reason, it is also notoriously hard to document and measure. Certainly, the institutions responsible for promoting or not promoting these different co contributors to labor productivity are likely to be quite different, even within a single country. In the East Asian case, the so-called pluriactive household, fancy way of saying a household that switches its members back and forth among many market-oriented activities, is probably the crucial one, both for the formation of these more general dispositions that go into human capital, and arguably for many crucial skills as well. Tanimoto Masayuki has recently made an interesting case for its relevance to the small subcontracting firms so important to the rise of Japanese industry to global competitiveness in the late 19th and early 20th century. And I think the same can be done for developments in Taiwan and in coastal China. But again, I hope that the combination of some sharp differences and a few similarities are sufficient to make the juxtaposition of different development paths interesting. The early Ming Dynasty, if we go back to the 14th century, wished to freeze China's social structure and to make most craft occupations hereditary. They thus sought to register people with industrial skills and to impose heavy obligations that they rotate through a term of service in state manufactories. The system did not last long. Passive resistance and strong incentives for officials to look the other way made it largely a dead letter by the middle of the dynasty with state manufacturing increasingly relying 
on hired labor and outsourcing at market rates. So on paper, there were all these people who owed compulsory service in the state factories. In practice, they rarely showed up, and the state basically had to um, replace them with people it hired through the market. Meanwhile, growing luxury markets proved a much better outlet for the labor of craftsmen. The increasing irrelevance of sumptuary laws by the late Ming, something recently documented at length by Wu Shu, was the flip side of the failure of the Ming attempt to control production in major crafts. In some places, the state manufacturing system left behind a legacy of weak, guild-like organizations, which seem to have been created or modified from earlier institutions, partly to facilitate interaction with the state agencies that had requisitioned labor and products. But it's unclear what else these groups may have done or how much influence they actually had, particularly once their role of interacting with state requisitions was no longer necessary. In many ways, they seem weaker than some of the guilds we know about from pre-Mongol times. It's also worth noting that the Ming were largely concerned with those artisans who produced goods that the state needed and or conferred high prestige on those who acquired them. Consequently, the huge numbers of people producing relatively simple consumer goods for rural markets or producing intermediate goods, things like barrels in which to ship oils, were largely outside the Ming system. And their numbers expanded considerably over the course of the Ming and even more in the Qing, at least in certain regions. In particularly poor regions, the limited demand for high quality goods seems to have prevented the formation of any kind of strong local guild system. Um, and the demand for high quality goods in these poorest regions seems to have been met by some combination of traveling merchants and traveling craftsmen. There is some evidence, for instance, that high quality metal pieces in some rural North China temples were made by itinerant craftsmen working a regular circuit. But these are just hints. At any rate, I want to focus primarily tonight on more prosperous areas where the market was sufficient to support um, high quality craftsmen who often were involved in horizontal organizations we can roughly call guilds. In some ways, then, the institutional configuration of craft production in the more advanced regions of China bears a superficial resemblance to that in late medieval Europe. High-end production was largely done in the cities, often in large workshops, by craftsmen who were members of organizations that linked workers across many workshops and who often came from someplace else. While middle and lower-end production was done by suburban and rural people, many of them women, at least for the textile trades, usually in homes or small workshops who often had no institutionalized horizontal ties, while the merchants who bought from them were generally organized, though not always so. But these resemblances are probably more apparent than real. On the one hand, the urban workers' organizations in China generally had little power and certainly no de jure power. And many did not even see economic regulation as their most important task. While some, as I just noted, emerged from Ming efforts to organize trades 
for purposes of meeting corvée obligations. Others evolved out of organizations that were originally based on a shared place of origin rather than a shared trade. So for instance, one would have the organization of people from Shaoxing currently residing in Suzhou, which would include merchants, officials, artisans, etc. It was a fairly common historical pattern for such groups to eventually subdivide, with the officials and would-be officials splitting off first, and then a reorganization based on trade occurring, so that if, say, people from Guangzhou dominated boat building in a particular city, a boat builder's organization would emerge out of what had been originally an association for people from Guangdong in general. This is particularly a common pattern in the 17th and 18th centuries, um, this shift from native place organization toward um, occupational organization. And then in some cases, there was a further schism with merchants and artisans in the same trade dividing from each other. The process of creating something more like occupational guilds also sometimes involved combining across geographic origins, as happened, for instance, when Suzhou printers, who had originally been organized into three separate groups based on place of origin, created one printer's guild in the 17th century, something that obviously gave them a great deal more market power than they would have had before. These guilds seem to have focused above all on providing social services for their members, at least if their written rules are any guide, though relying on the written rules is a risky assumption in either Asia or Europe. Provisions about ensuring proper burials, assisting the sick and injured, organizing shared worship of patron deities, and so on, predominate in lists of rules. But that could be because these were guilds' least controversial functions, and thus the ones safest to write down. We have no systematic records of internal proceedings, except in a few 20th century cases. So we don't actually know what the bulk of the business that was adjudicated inside these guilds was. Guilds did promote standardized weights, measures, quality standards, and in some cases, prices. They did regulate the length of apprenticeships, and they did grant temporary work in the trade to visitors which presumably means that they could at least theoretically withhold that permission to work in the trade. However, we have very few documented cases of this actually happening before the late 19th century. The appearance of such cases then might be just an artifact of better documentation, but it is just as likely an effect of some guilds feeling on the one hand increasingly empowered through their increasing involvement in tax farming arrangements which became much more common after 1853 and often involved substantial grants of power over a trade to the guild farming some new commercial tax. While on the other hand, they also often felt increasingly threatened in this period by new technologies. It's worth noting that in those towns which became commercially important without ever becoming major administrative centers, guilds seem to have been more likely to form confederations than they were elsewhere and those confederations were more likely to take over various significant functions for the town as a whole, arranging for firefighting, street maintenance, poor relief for the whole town, not just for members, and so on. One might suspect that where guilds did play this kind of expanded role, 
a sort of quasi-political role, while direct government supervision was limited, they would also have taken advantage of the situation to exercise more control of markets. But interestingly, the limited evidence we have suggests no such pattern. What we do find is both merchant and artisan guilds making stronger efforts to create and enforce local monopolies, again, after 1853, when their fiscal role expanded and they became more entangled with the state. So interestingly enough, we have not, it seems, the greatest guild interference in the market in the cases where they were sort of left alone in the interstices of state power. But instead, we see that, that kind of intervention growing in the period when they became more closely linked to the state. Prior to that, there was not much evidence of strong local monopolies or oligopolies, except in certain service occupations. Meanwhile, rural production appears to have been more specialized, more dependent on long-distance trade for its markets, and perhaps even more skilled than most rural European proto-industrial production of the late medieval period. In these ways, it may have been more reminiscent of Europe's next round of rural industrialization in the late 17th to early 19th centuries, the one that most people think of when they say proto-industry though Larry used the term as well for the late medieval period. No special grants from urban authorities were needed for rural people to enter artisanal production, and the capital needed for most kinds of production aimed at low and medium level markets was inexpensive. The merchants who sold these goods, often in distant markets, enforced quality standards, and many engaged in a kind of trademarking, but there was no legal authority behind this. The workers were often quite skilled, but in particular ways that made some kinds of development more likely than others. The best paid rural workers at any given moment were often those who produced items very specifically tailored to particular markets. For instance, cloth with specific, very complex woven patterns in demand in some particular place. But that did not necessarily mean that these workers were the most adaptable nor that they had the most power to secure their positions in the long run. In other words, they often seem to have had highly specific skills rather than more general capacities. A strikingly high share of the very few cases of successful collective action by rural artisans that I know of involved literate people who carved woodblocks on a putting out basis for urban printers. And their power derived from having a skill rather than from any formally recognized organization. And they probably learned that skill, i.e. literacy, mostly within families rather than from other printers qua printers. In short, locally effective coalitions and decentralized rent seeking seem to have been quite limited, in part because China had long had the kind of state Epstein saw emerging in late medieval, early modern Europe absolutely sovereign and rarely disposed to interfere with private property or contracts. The result was impressive static efficiency, but was not necessarily ideal for investment in technical change. And the other cru crucial aspect of guilds that intrigued Larry Epstein was precisely their role in teaching skills and creating or diffusing innovations. His argument 
that certain local monopoly privileges constituted a kind of infant industry protection that actually facilitated technical innovation was particularly interesting and, as Chris noted, controversial. Essentially, he argued that guilds, A, provided training. That part isn't controversial, though how important it was relative to rent-seeking has been. B, created a structure that facilitated the movement of workers and thus the sharing of skills. And C, provided a form of temporary monopoly rents that were an incentive for innovators. He also effectively called into question many of the standard bases for claiming that guilds stifled innovation without denying that this sometimes happened or that guild promotion of innovation was largely inadvertent. One point that rings especially true for an East Asianist is his reminder that pre-modern technological change was usually not labor-saving nor necessarily de-skilling and thus posed no particular threat to guilds leaving them no reason to oppose it. What then can we say about guilds, learning, and technical change in East Asian contexts? How were skills learned within these kinds of structures? Unfortunately, we know very little. The guild rules we have, at least in China, specify a remarkably uniform three-year-long apprenticeship, which, since not every craft takes the same amount of time to learn, suggests that other factors may have been at work. But still, this seems to have been an important way that artisanal skills were transferred. While there are some hints of very high literacy rates in certain towns, such as the iron-making center of Foshan, printed texts explaining artisanal practices do not survive in great numbers. And those that do survive, such as the richly detailed Tiangong Kai Wu, were clearly intended more for the curious gentlemen than for the actual craftsmen. They would have been far too expensive for a craftsman to buy. By contrast, enormous numbers of do-it-yourself medical manuals with simple instructions written on cheap paper do survive, as well as many manuals for householders which give very basic instructions for a number of practical skills, but not as much detail on any one of them as a professional would have needed to learn their trade. Oral transmission thus seems to have been dominant, whether carried out in families, guilds, or elsewhere. Because oral transmission of skills leaves little trace in the record, we cannot say very much about these processes. But it seems likely that, given an absence of de jure power over markets, the benefits of technique sharing probably played a significant role in sustaining guild membership, along with the social and religious services discussed earlier. Since a great many skilled workers moved to another city to learn their trade, and then sometimes to still another city to practice it, guilds that provided important social supports, comrades who spoke one's home dialect, etc., were presumably important to the acquisition and diffusion of skills. What is less clear is to what extent guilds also prevented some people from acquiring skills. Many craft groups were organized by native place, though the exclusions were generally not completely rigid, and to the extent that a given set of skilled workers managed to colonize every place where there was demand for their services, perhaps their common origin didn't limit the supply of those skills to the market. However, one wonders to what extent the role of ascribed characteristics in providing opportunities to learn skills 
may have limited the development of innovations requiring people with different skills, and thus in many cases belonging to different guilds and probably speaking different dialects, even if they worked in the same city, from collaborating with each other. If an improved loom required inputs from, say, a highly skilled weaver, a carpenter, and an iron worker, it is possible that the strength of native place traditions could have been a significant barrier. But this, too, is speculation. We know a little bit more about how migration, diffusion of skills, and innovation worked in the 19th and 20th centuries. It is interesting that when Shanghai began its rapid development, the vast majority of its skilled workers came from very specific areas, often in the Yangtze Delta, quite close to the city, and continued to pursue occupations with which their home territories were associated. The pattern for unskilled workers, interestingly, was quite different. They mostly came from poorer areas much further away. Yangtze Delta men who did move to Shanghai were primarily artisans, organized in guilds with strong native place components, carpenters, printers, various sorts of metal workers, painters, masons, and so on. The same was true of another stream of immigrants from the relatively prosperous Canton area, who began moving to Shanghai when it supplanted Canton as the primary center of foreign trade. People from the Yangtze Delta also dominated the limited ranks of skilled workers, both male and female, in textile mills, cigarette factories, on the docks and elsewhere, and also dominated the ranks of people entering apprenticeship programs, both male and female. Perhaps aided by the fact that technological change was slower in Shanghai industry than it was in the corresponding Japanese industries, and thus their skills remained relevant for longer, these artisanal groups were also successful in colonizing many of the new skilled occupations that sprung up in Shanghai. Virtually all boilermakers in Republican Shanghai came from Wuxi, for instance, and most machinists from Ningbo and Shaoxing, and they generally colonized these trades out of a base in an existing guild that had been centered in their hometown. However one understands the reasons for this, the kind of relatively manual skilled labor intensive industry that characterized both the urban and the rural lower Yangtze before 1850 remained important in 20th century Shanghai, even as the city also experienced a flood of less skilled laborers from the north. At least as a working hypothesis, I would suggest that the continuities between old kinds of skilled work and new industry were significantly more important in Shanghai than in pre-war Japanese cities. And the resulting growth, if not as rapid as in Japan, and of course buried in a huge Chinese economy, which included a number of stagnant or declining areas, was nonetheless impressive. A less positive way of looking at the Shanghai pattern might be to say that while Japan's more rapid creation of a cohort of engineers and artisans with modern skills both enabled and required them to move much more quickly beyond reliance on partially retrained so-called traditional artisans who had proved themselves inadequate to many of the demands of modern industry, Shanghai relied on such people for a longer time because its technology was upgraded more slowly. It also clearly turned to book learning much more slowly as a basis for skills. But it is also worth remembering that even if technological change was slower in the Delta than in Japan, the early 20th century growth rate of its industrial sector was almost as impressive. 
Moreover, at least until 1949, neither the skilled nor the unskilled immigrants to Shanghai cut their ties to their native places. This appears to be true both for those relocating from other towns and cities, for instance, shipbuilding carpenters who had previously worked in Ningbo or Canton, or from rural villages. Thus, not only did rural industry remain important, even in the country's major industrial metropolis, urban and rural labor markets remained closely intertwined. The same pattern has, in fact, persisted even into the present, or perhaps we should say reasserted itself even in the present, after a period in which city and countryside were quite rigidly separated. As is well known, a remarkable amount of China's recent industrial boom is rural and or suburban, especially in the lower Yangtze region, which has a very disproportionate share of China's most skill-intensive, high-value-added sectors. Much of the training of skilled workers in these rural and suburban plants has been implemented by luring Shanghai workers who originally came from these areas back to their homes, often after they retired or were laid off from state-owned factories in Shanghai. Thus, high levels of artisanal skill seem less firmly identified with cities in China than in Europe, perhaps due in part to very high rural population densities, which made agglomeration effects less exclusive to urban settings, perhaps also due to the fact that cities were not special legal jurisdictions. And neither cities nor countryside had anything like the degree of interference with markets that we see in Europe. But high levels of skill are not the same as a strong impetus towards technological change. And here, the late imperial Yangtze Delta did not do very well. In Tokugawa, Japan, guilds were considerably stronger, so that direct comparison with Epstein's arguments about Europe are easier. In fact, one could argue that the combination of fragmentation and unity in the Tokugawa system had some significant resemblances to what he and others described for late medieval Europe. Large numbers of jurisdictions, many of which granted monopolies of various sorts to particular producers, shared fiscal pressures, though in the Japanese case, largely from the costs of attendance at court rather than from warfare, creating incentives to produce, to improve a domain's balance of payments, both by exporting high-end products and by making do with whatever version of cheaper goods could be produced locally, whether local producers had a comparative advantage or not. And the gradual lapsing of many monopolies in many domains as rural industries developed, more often, as far as I can tell, for import substitution than for export. There are echoes here of all the varied Italian cases that Larry described in Freedom and Growth, but precisely because the resemblances are general enough to recall many of his cases, which had very different outcomes, we can't conclude too much from them and need to look at the differences at least as closely. In Japan, the connection between the domainal regimes and the monopolistic guilds was often very strong and top-down, so that enforcement of restrictions could be very firm. At the famous Arida Porcelain Works, for instance, guards were posted around the village where the key artisans lived to prevent any secrets from leaking. And special care was taken to subdivide the labor process to ensure that no one person knew all the relevant secrets of production. The key enforcers here were the domainal authorities, not the guilds. This sounds in many ways more like Larry's picture 
of the ultimately technologically stagnant Tuscany than his more dynamic Lombardy. Likewise, the migration of skilled workers in Japan often seems to have been initiated from the top by local authorities inviting skilled workers to visit or immigrate rather than through worker-controlled patterns of circulation that connected different domains. Of course, such invitations from above happened in Europe too, but they were supplemented there, very strongly supplemented by these um, circuits of migration that workers themselves organized. There was certainly some flow of skilled workers toward the growing cities of Edo, Osaka, and Kyoto with their huge luxury markets. But at least so far, I'm unaware of a worker-initiated flow back down the urban hierarchy or among second-tier Japanese cities. Government restrictions on migration were not perfectly enforced, but they were certainly stronger than in China or in large portions of Europe. From this, one might expect to see a relatively poor technological performance in Tokugawa, Japan. But there were also countervailing forces. A fairly literate population and lots of printing of technical manuals. The number of these that survive is in very sharp contrast to China, and I'm not at all sure why this is. Um, a fair amount of importation of technology, first mostly from China, later mostly from Europe. And in many ways, the creation and especially the diffusion of technology in Tokugawa, Japan, seems quite impressive, particularly compared to the poorer performance of the much more liberal China. There seems, for instance, to have been much more change in tools and in techniques of tool making, evident not only in the pages of those technical manuals, but in the seemingly endless subdivision of the carpenter's guild into loom makers, cart makers, etc., etc., going on constantly through the Tokugawa. There was less proliferation of metal tools, but that's not surprising given the costs of fuel, something that was an even bigger problem in key regions of China. The cross-fertilization of techniques in different realms of endeavor and across different social circles seems to have been a good deal more vigorous than in China. The quick adoption of the thermometer, for instance, something originally introduced by doctors, to monitor conditions in silkworm sheds is one striking example that took much, much longer to happen on the other side of the Yellow Sea. A couple of decades ago, this might have seemed to add up to a neat synthesis. Japanese industrial organization was much more feudal, in quotes, than China's. Now that we've seen that feudal institutions like guilds had their technologically progressive side, we know why Japan did particularly well. But we're nowhere near a point where we can jump to such a conclusion. As Larry was also intent on reminding us, there was no single model of how European guilds or city-states worked, even if we recognize family resemblances. And the Japanese institutions, in many ways, seem more like those which he blames for technological conservatism in Florence, with the guilds and the state that ruled the countryside very closely aligned, than like those of Lombardy, which he thought had created more positive dynamics through a kind of creative tension. And when one gets to the 19th century adoption of modern technologies in Japan, the contribution of workers self-organized in guilds to technological progress seems to flip again. As we saw before, Japanese industries seem to have depended more on new institutions and formal book-based training to create a labor force for modern industries than Chinese industries did. 
and to have had much less continuity of personnel between old and new shipbuilders, iron workers, etc. Of course, as mentioned before, this may be partly because the rate of technological change was faster in Japan, and the state moved much faster to create arsenals, technical schools, etc. So some of this difference may be less a matter of the adaptability of Chinese arsenals than the lesser adequacy of any, of any artisanal tradition amidst faster technological change and the slower creation of creating of superior channels of skill formation in China. But I'm not sure that's the whole story. The adaptability of Yangtze Delta craftsmen to 20th century industrial roles is really quite impressive. And some East Asian similarities the ones I alluded to early in the talk as human capital that one wouldn't quite call skills, formed in pluriactive families responding to markets, may be as important as any differences. At any rate, I'm inclined to end with more modest hypotheses, but ones that I think take us back to some of the points that Larry Epstein's work helped bring out in a European context. First, that there was no necessary reason that the same institutions that were good for encouraging market integration were good for encouraging technological innovation. Or to put it another way, that what helped an economy move close to its production possibility frontier didn't necessarily have much to do with what would help shift that frontier outward. A second and related point is that changes in the volume of industrial production might not greatly affect the likelihood of changes in the technology of production. From the point of view of employment, output, income distribution, and standard of living, all very big issues, rural proto-industrialization in all its many forms and locations across Eurasia remains a huge story. But that did not necessarily make it a promising source of technological change. And in the last two centuries, of course, technology that has taken center stage. Some of the possible reasons Larry mentioned why rural industry may have been less technologically fertile than urban crafts, even when they held much of the market and competed successfully against urban producers, are well worth exploring further. Particularly, I think, his point that the high monitoring costs for anybody who had wanted to introduce new techniques would have made it particularly hard to do that when you were dealing with a group of scattered rural producers. Interestingly, they, this would not necessarily apply to the introduction of new products, because that kind of innovation could be easily monitored by the person collecting and selling the product. And that happened all the time, forming a very substantial part of the way that rural proto-industrial producers in the leading regions of East Asia coped with competition from new low-wage entrants and later with mechanized competitors as well. Conversely, this story suggests that in looking for institutional explanation of rates of technological change in pre-modern industry, we may want to pay particular attention to spillovers from a relatively small group of high-end industries producing for relatively exacting consumers as in instrument production, clocks, weapons, etc., and the opportunities for spillovers created when workers in those industries came into contact with new people who had different problems. For modern East Asian cases in particular, I think it constitutes one more reason for going back to look again at the role of arsenals 
something that figured very prominently in early accounts of Japanese and Chinese industrialization, and then largely got dropped as we switched from narrative to econometric approaches and became more skeptical of the contributions of firms that were not themselves competitive. But those arsenals are attracting some interest again, and I think it's quite right that we look at those as really key centers of adaptation to new technologies. And this tale also suggests a point that I think Larry himself would have emphasized, that we need to look at the rights, plural, bargaining positions and freedoms of rather strategic subgroups of people, including those that may have infringed on the rights of other groups, rather than a more abstract summary of how much freedom in the modern singular and abstract usage characterized a given society as a whole. Thank you. Okay, I'm, I'm going to start off uh, discussions and commentaries sitting here rather, rather than going back there. Um, and um, I'll, I'll, I'll ask the first question, then I'll throw the questioning open to the floor. And I'm, I'm told that there are mics around. Is that correct? Yeah, excellent. So uh, if you shut your hand up, then, then the, the people who've got mics will come and find you. Um, okay, well, uh, I, I thought, as, I, as I'm sure that the rest of you did, that that was, a, that was extraordinarily stimulating discussion. Um, and I was interested, I, mean, I, I was struck at the beginning that, that, that Ken's saying, are we discussing, when we're looking at China, are we discussing failure or success? And I guess that one of the, for one of the points, uh, uh, for one of the problems always, if, if you're looking at, at, at early modern, mid-modern Chinese economic history, is, is how, how much time do you spend actually analyzing the Chinese experience before you get to the stage where you're aware of the fact that you look over your shoulder and that everybody else has got the grand narrative of the, the teleology of change, the Western parallel, maybe the, the Japanese parallel as well. Um, uh, and that's, that is, I guess, the way that, that Ken's work itself has, uh, has developed, starting off with, with an empirical analysis and then, and then moving out to the broad picture. But I suppose that the best way of coping with this is to analyze the functional relationships inside Chinese the Chinese economy without worrying too much about the victory of industrialism or capitalism or the West or whatever. Um, I guess that the brief reference to the cost of fuel in, in that talk was about as close to the arguments of the great divergence as, as you've got. Um, and uh, it, that's an important issue, but I can see uh, why you didn't put a lot of stress on it here. So following that principle of sticking to a functional analysis, I'd just like to say that from my perspective as, uh, as a medievalist, uh, most of the things that, that Ken was saying about China remind me an awful lot of the Roman Empire. Um, and I thought that was interesting. Um, the economic architecture of the Roman Empire, as you might call it, isn't unlike China, um, although the economic complexity of the place is less. Um, I, I want to stress that doesn't mean that I'm saying look how archaic China is, or gosh, how archaic China looks. It's more, um, this is how 
an economic equilibrium, a high-level economic equilibrium, works in a strong state. And I think that's striking, and I think that's worth developing. The West doesn't, doesn't have strong states like that, though it does have strong microstates, which is where the parallels with, uh, with Larry's work come straight in. But, um, but how the economy works in a strong state, analyzed without teleology, is, I think, crucial for getting at what, what the specificities of China are going to be. Um, and here, rather, rather than make a Western parallel, I'd like to ask you to, if you could develop the parallel with Japan. Um, because, obviously, Japan's got a strong state as well uh, from the 17th onwards. And it's got, a, a, as, a, as I understand it, a similar hierarchy of economic complexity and economic skills from you know, big towns, small towns, rural industry and the like. Similar hierarchy. Uh, much of Japan has a similar hierarchy to at least the, the lower Yangtze. But the outcomes are different. And, and here I think it is worth, worth considering outcomes. And you did briefly at the end of the talk. Um, and you say well, well literacy. Um, you mention art. Uh, you mention art, uh, um, And, and I, I'd like you to talk a little bit more about the general role of the state and the general role of state-backed enterprises in the general issue of technological diffusion. Because I suppose that that it's possible to see how extremely complicated economic hierarchy fits structurally with a strong state. But um, it's less easy, easy to see how, how that technological flip-over uh, works in the framework of a strong state, which is, which is, which is something that appears to have taken place in, in Japan. And uh, if you could say a bit more about that as a, as a kick-off, I'd be grateful. Yeah, as you like. Let me just start by saying something about this question of the teleology of change, because I think, with, particularly with some of the people who are in the audience tonight, it's worth reflecting that we do have something of a historiographical model of how you move from having always had the narrative of failure in your mind to how you, you know, break free of that in much of the literature on continental Europe. It's not that long ago that so much of the literature about France or about Holland or about Renaissance Italy was all about, you know, why did they ultimately fail, right? You know, in other words, why weren't they Britain? And in the last couple of decades, the field has moved beyond that in very interesting ways, partly by saying, you know, in the grand scheme of things, having industrialized 75 years later, you know, is not a huge story. Um, I think it is at least arguable that not for China as a whole, but for distinct regions of China, we can make something of the same move. Right? Which is not to say that we want to get rid of all explanations of why at a particular moment China was poor, became relatively poor, because it did become, in relative terms, quite poor. But, you know, if we... Sometimes looking back from the present is useful as a kind of corrective to stories that had frozen our narratives with reference to a different present. So let me just, um, and now for the question about you know, 
how does a strong state fit into these stories? And how in particular does it fit into the difference between the Chinese and Japanese stories? And of course, one crucial thing here is that there are, there are many kinds of strong states and many measures of what strength is. Measured in terms of its ability to eliminate other contenders for power over a vast area, the Chinese state is, of course, remarkably strong. Measured by, say, the share of the economy that it takes, it's a fairly weak state, which by Qing times has become a very weak state. Um, you know, it's, you know, estimates differ, but it's quite likely that the Qing in the 18th and early 19th century are claiming something on the order of 3% of GDP. You know, that's very small. You, know, you, you contrast that with Tokugawa Japan, where you know, the size of the Tokugawa state has also been shrinking from what we used to have in the literature. But you know, it's down to the 10 to 15% range. Um, that's a huge difference. So these are strong states in different kinds of ways. And I think part of what's interesting on the Chinese side is that this is a state that could get enormous amounts of things done, crudely speaking, in one of two ways. One is because of its scale, when it chose to focus its resources on a particular space, a particular part of the empire, it could do remarkable things. And in some sense, you could even argue that its ability to arbitrage resources across space meant that it never worked very hard on arbitraging resources across time. Right? It didn't have to borrow from the future. And there are a whole set of developments in everything from finance to politics that don't happen the same way if the state doesn't borrow. And the Chinese state, after borrowing significantly in the Song, stops doing it for essentially six centuries. Um, the other way it could get things done was by relying on local elites who shared its basic view of how the world was supposed to work and to whom it thus felt much safer delegating certain things than many European states of the time would have felt. And so you have this kind of dichotomy where, oddly enough, this is a state that rules with a pretty light hand in places like the Lower Yangtze, where the elites are very strong and the state more or less says, you know, you guys can handle you know, everything from famine relief to flood control to you know, schools to whatever. Where we need to put our resources is out in the poor areas of North and Northwest China, where there is no local elite to do this. So it's a strong state of a very peculiar kind, a strong state that in some sense is relatively weak in precisely the areas that might have been the most likely places in which certain kinds of transformations would have germinated. Now that doesn't 
then answer the question of why those changes don't germinate there, because of course we have no consensus on whether a strong state is more an aid or more an impediment to those transformations. But it is an interesting structural fact mm -hmm. that this is a state that is, relatively speaking, weakest in its richest areas. I think you could make a case, and you know, this is one of these huge generalizations that makes even me nervous, and I'm less nervous about huge generalizations than many people in, the, in my field, that as long as economic change and growth are primarily Smithian, right? they're primarily about increasing the extent of the market and the division of labor, that having a state that's relatively weak in the richest parts of the country is probably more good than bad. Once change turn, economic change comes to be primarily about certain other things, and particularly in the 19th century, about transformations that require both large amounts of fixed capital, i.e. things like railroads, but also about radically retraining at least certain parts of the workforce, then having a state that is relatively weak in its richest areas may turn to a detriment. And that's where the contrast that was popular in the literature, say, 35 years ago, between Japanese arsenals, for instance, that seem to have made a remarkable contribution to training workers who then, when the arsenals lay people off, go and play a very important role in the private sector, and Chinese arsenals, which were smaller, less successful, et cetera, et cetera, may be worth revisiting. Um, as I said, that, that argument went out of fashion from, I guess, about the mid-'70s on as we began to look at Japanese growth much more in terms of the role of the market and began to see the Meiji state as this kind of lumbering, klutzy thing rather than the you know, remarkable achievement we used to look at it as. And I wonder if maybe we want to go back a little bit towards that older view. You know, not because everything the Meiji state did worked out right. I mean, their textile mills, for instance, were flops. But it does seem to me that things like the enormous amount of training that went into um, again, things like the arsenals, things like a lot of the local technological societies and technology museums that were built in the Meiji period may well have had a very important impact that you know, doesn't show up when you look at these institutions and say, did they make a profit? Well, no, they didn't, but they did other things. And I think the, again, relatively weak in its richest areas, Chinese state, has a much harder time doing things like that. Um, that's obviously not the whole story, but I think it's, it's at least one place to start from. Yeah, thanks. That's extremely interesting. Oh, we've got about 10 minutes for wider discussion, so who wants to take their hand up? We're going to be technological faults while we pass the mic. Uh, is it working? Yes, I yeah. gather it is. 
Um, I was if very people, interested. People say who they are, by the way. Sorry. If, if you say who, who you are, Jim. Oh yes, uh, my name is John Lyman from the University of Alberta. Uh, it was a really fascinating talk. I was really uh, fascinated by some of the things you said about punctuality, trustworthiness, and it got me thinking about uh, the importance of discipline to technological change, of uh, being able to exert social pressures, legal pressures, in order that technologies will uh, continue take off. And, uh, um, you know, so the things about contracts for bad workmanship, uh, breaking of contracts when you don't build a thing properly. Do you pick up any difference between these attitudes in the Chinese case versus, say, the European case? I am sure there are differences. I think the real struggle is to figure out, you know, how do we measure these kinds of things, right? And we have, of course, in any context, what tends to make it into the record are the complaints, right? So in, whether it's in early modern Europe or in China or in Japan, right, lots of records survive of merchants, factory owners, whoever, complaining that their workers don't do X, Y, or Z. And it's never entirely clear how you move from the volume of those complaints that happen to survive to valid generalizations about how widespread certain kinds of behaviors were. What I think is interesting and suggests, though I underline the word suggests, because that's all it is, maybe some interesting similarities between the ends of Eurasia. And here I'm really thinking when I think of the eastern end of the China coast and Japan, not all of China, is how very quickly rural people seem to have adapted to the rhythms of non-agricultural production. And that, at least, again, in the case I know best, which is the Lower Yangtze, probably has something to do with the fact that many of them had been engaged in non-agricultural production for a very, very long time. Um, the Yangtze Delta household by, certainly by the 18th century, is always producing non-agricultural goods for the market. And I think for the market is crucial because, of course, agricultural households everywhere do things other than agriculture. What I think is interesting in the case of the Lower Yangtze and, to a lesser extent, the Pearl River Delta and parts of Fujian is how widespread production in the countryside for sale is pretty early and how important it is, how important competitiveness in non-local markets is. So again, I mean, the Yangtze Delta is the polar case, but by the 17th century, this is an area that's importing 
quite significant shares of its foodstuffs, um, of its you know, of its other primary products, and paying for it with long-distance shipments of above-all textiles. And of course, when you do that, when you're not you know when you're not just engaged in craft production, but you're engaged in craft production for sale that a merchant has to accept and say, yes, you know, this meets my quality standards. I'm willing to sell it under my name 500 miles away. A certain kind of discipline is enforced. Um, and it does, you know, that does matter. Um, it's extraordinarily hard to quantify how it matters. Um, Another thing that I think is interesting, and here one has to be even more suggestive, but I think as far back as the late 16th century, again, in the, in the Delta at least, you see pretty good evidence that households are switching from one activity to another, reallocating their labor based on price signals. And that's not an easy lesson to learn, right? I mean, that's not a, you know, there are, as we all know, very important coordination problems involved in doing that. If you do it and things don't go as you think, you're in deep, deep trouble. And yet I think there's pretty widespread evidence that this is, you know, taken for granted as something you do, at least in the more commercialized parts of rural China at a pretty early date. And again, I think that enforces you know, certain kinds of discipline that were probably learned above all in the home, but in a home that is oriented towards the market. Um, Saito Osamu has suggested that some of the same things happen in Japan for slightly different reasons. But again, you know, his key unit is not a firm as we would think of it nor is it a peasant household trying to insulate itself from the market. It's a peasant household deeply enmeshed in the market. And that doesn't, in a sense, really answer your question, but it gives you, I think, some of the building blocks that I would hope to would go into thinking through an answer in the future. Yeah, I think the important thing you're saying, too, it may not be so much about the quantification of these things as the conceptualization of it, and we're just in the process of doing that. Uh, my sense is um, the issue of urban versus rural discipline are these two different worlds of dis discipline, if you like, and how they uh, attack problems of everyday life. Uh, yeah. It's more narrowly technology. Yeah. I mean, my but, guess, yeah. again, it's only a guess, is that if you were to look at either China or Japan, the urban-rural contrast would be less strong, but the contrast between both city and countryside in certain regions and city and countryside in less commercialized regions would be vast. Right, we've got time for one quick question. Um, I actually, I'm afraid, Maxine, it's someone to two, to two rows behind you. Yeah. <laughs> um, Patrick Wallace, uh, Economic History, LSE. Um, I, was, I found that very enjoyable. I was wondering if I'm, I could ask you to say a little bit more about the effects of one of the things that you picked up on, was, which was the uh, common geographical origin of people working in crafts. Um, I mean, this is prompted in some ways by some of the other papers that we're going to hear over the next few days. Um, but this seems to be one of the other very big differ differences between Asia and Europe. 
um, in Europe, and this is one of the things we're working on, users in crafts come from a lot of different origins, a lot of different places, um, and to that extent they bring, bring knowledge to the craft, uh, and they also have a greater opportunity to match aptitude and opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, you, ha you highlighted, I think, rightly, the effect of knowledge spillovers. Um, but I was wondering whether you thought there may be some other effects of these kind of geographic boundings around um, occupations in this kind of form that they may limit, they may effectively act like social capital um, in a pernicious sense, and that kind of ogilvy argument. Um, so really, um, that's the question. I mean, does, do you think that geographical bounds matter in some senses as a, as a limit on matching on uh, the ability of occupations of crafts in Asia to recruit the kind of people that it needs if it's going to develop? Um, well, let me first um, narrow the question from Asia to China, because this great importance of native place is really very much a Chinese phenomenon. Um, I think it is quite possible that native place organization does inhibit certain kinds of spillovers. But I don't want to jump to this too quickly because for one thing, it's not always clear that these native place organizations were actually limited to people from a particular native place. Um, you know, there's always a gap between what you publicly say and what is in fact practice. And not only do we know for a fact that native place organizations that dominated a particular craft were in the habit of giving temporary work permits to people from other places. It's also quite likely that under certain circumstances, people effectively changed their native place. I mean, you know, if you think of native place as being somewhat like ethnicity in a Chinese context, you know, we know how malleable ethnicity can be. And I think at times native place was, was malleable too. It's also true that though you know, the model in some sense is, oh, in this place, you know, all printers came from Suzhou or wherever. In practice, at least in the larger cities, you often had this kind of ebb and flow where there might be three different guilds that all had something to do with printing and that came from different places. Um, and they sort of came together and pulled apart at different moments. I think, and I'm saying this without any kind of rigorous check of the record, but I think that most of the stories that have come down to us of really ferocious enforcement of native place exclusiveness actually come from services with very little skill involved. So for instance, in Beijing, where at one point all the water carriers were from Shandong, they appear to have enforced that monopoly quite vigorously. And presumably they needed force precisely because it's not an occupation that's hard to learn. You know, and then there were also things about services as opposed to products that make it easier to cheat. So I think we may find out over time that this native place stuff was far less rigid than we think. 
But even saying that, I think there probably is a difference that matters. I mean, I think, again, if you imagine that producing, let's say, a new kind of loom would have required the collaboration of a skilled carpenter, a skilled weaver who knew what the loom had to do, maybe a metal worker, so on and so forth, it's quite possible that that is harder where crafts are organized on native place lines. So you may again have institutions that tend towards static efficiency, but less change. But you know, it's a real guess at this point, a real, real guess. Okay, I'm now gonna pass the mic to Rita Astuti, um, who is an anthropologist at this august institution um, and was also Larry's partner. I'm very pleased to have this opportunity to say a few words uh, tonight, and I must apologize for reading from a prepared text, but I don't think that otherwise I would make it to the end of what I want to say. But I will not be long. Together with Sean, my son, I would like to thank all the colleagues, students, and friends who have helped us through the last 15 months since Larry left us so suddenly and unexpectedly. In Madagascar, where I do my anthropological fieldwork, when someone dies, large crowds of neighbors, friends, and other relations gather for several days to help the bereaved family make it through their loss. They do it by shouldering some of the work of mourning in many different, mostly, mostly practical ways. For example, during the funerary wakes, hundreds of people gather to sing loudly through the night. Whenever the wailing of the mother who lost her daughter, the son who lost his father, or the wife who lost her husband becomes too loud, the crowds must respond by singing even harder in order to drown out the wailing. This is so that the close relatives inside the house who guard the corpse will not feel too sad and will find the strength to make it to sunrise. Every time I participated in a wake, I was deeply moved by this collective effort to assert that life is and must be noisier than grief. Naturally, the specific ways in which you have helped me and Sean in our work of mourning have been rather different than what I witnessed in Madagascar but they've been equally assertive and supportive. The many wonderful letters we received, the crowds that attended the funeral, the work that went into organizing and delivering Regina Graf's first Epstein Memorial Lecture last March, and tonight's lecture, the conference that will unfold in the next few days. These have been the noisy ways with which you have drowned the wailing and helped me and Sean find the strength to make it to sunrise. We all feel Larry's absence tonight, and we will feel it in the next few days. We will miss his penetrating questions and critical comments. And yet, we can also easily imagine how pleased he is to see that you are engaging with his work and that you are keeping his ideas alive. And for this, too, 
Sean and I would like to thank you all.